Father, we do give you praise this morning, for indeed you are doing great things. You already have done a great thing in sending your son Jesus to rescue us from our sins. And because of that great thing, there are a multitude of billions of billions of other great things happening. Namely, you are calling people to yourself who are being renewed in the image of Christ, who are being forgiven of their sins, who are being refreshed by your grace and mercy, who are experiencing your love in powerful and life-changing ways. And for that, we give you thanks. And God, we are mindful this day as we have just finished celebrating Christmas, the celebration of the coming of Jesus. We are so grateful in this season to celebrate the themes of faith and hope and love and joy and peace. And now we ask, God, as we gather in this place, that you would help us to discover what that might mean to live the Christmas story and the themes and the message in our lives day by day. So, Lord, it's one thing to be sentimental about this season and to revel in it. It's a whole other thing to live out its implications. And so we ask, God, that you would grant to us all the grace and all the empowerment we need to do that very thing. And so, Father, we look to you with eager expectation that you not only hear our prayers, but you answer them. And so, Father, we gathered in this place, having celebrated your radical generosity, having given and received gifts, having eaten probably too much. God, it is right and good in this moment to say thank you. It's a profound mystery what you have done in sending Jesus. And now we as a church are a people who share the unifying reality of having been ransomed by the blood of Jesus, assembled in this place, and as we've seen in the Advent season, a gathering of people from all walks of life reflecting your desire to have a people comprised of every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group. And so, Father, it is good for us to celebrate what you have done. Would you cause our hearts now to ponder these things, cause our minds to be attentive, cause the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened As we come to your word now, grant us the Holy Spirit in full measure and abundance. Grant to us the grace necessary to commune with you, to fellowship with one another, to hear from your word, to be changed by it. We look to you now for your glory and our joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ah, good morning, church. I pray and hope that your Christmas season was good. And I can tell by, uh, I was in my office just a second ago finishing off my coffee uh, because Christmas Eve got to me. We didn't get home till like 1.45 in the morning and oh man. So uh, anyways, I looked in the parking lot when I was upstairs and it's just a little bit, uh, you know, more empty than usual. And I'm thinking people just woke up with full bellies or whatever and thought, "Mm -mm, not today. I can't do it. So anyways, those of you who have bared the the cold weather and uh, who have come, I do want to welcome you and thank you for being here. If you're new to our church or you're just visiting, my name is Phil. I'm one of the pastors here at Golden Hills. I have the privilege of serving primarily um, in in the preaching and teaching ministry. And so uh, that is my responsibility today and this morning. 
And um, I want to let you know about a few things that are going on. Uh, one of the things is as visitors, sometimes to our church, uh, there'll be some questions that are asked, just kind of simply, what's the church about, and how can I get information on this, that, and the other? And I want to let you know that we have a couple ways that you can get some of those questions answered. One is just come talk to me, come find me. I usually try to get outside after the services as quickly as possible to the courtyard. Uh, introduce yourself. I love to meet people, hear the stories of uh, God's grace and providence in your own life. Um, we also have a connecting point as you head out. You look to the left, there's some folks over there that are more than willing to talk with you and answer any questions you have. We also have uh, what's available to you all is when you come in the little QR codes. So there's just little stands in the lobby area upstairs, downstairs, pull out your phone. We know you got your phone and then take a picture of the QR code. It'll take you to uh, the resources. You can get the bulletin, which has a lot of announcements and updates about what's going on here at the church. You can get the sermon outline. You can see um, a place to uh, um, submit a prayer request. And uh, so that way we can be praying for you. There's a lot of good resources there. Um, in addition to that, you can also uh, request to be put on our Thursday resource email list. That is, you give us your email. We send on Thursdays a resource uh, email to you. and It'll have the sermon outline and the bulletin and have some announcements and other things you should be aware of so you can have be communicated in that way. But also, we have been working diligently for the last several months on uh, revamping our website. And so we're going to be launching a, a revamped website in January. It's going to have much greater clarity and navigation and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so that'll be sometime in January. With that, we're also uh, releasing uh, a new app, and that'll be another resource, uh, greater communication, greater clarity. So we want to get as much information as possible out there. We'll let you know when it all goes live so you can download what you need to and all that kind of good stuff. Um, we're just hoping that God will be pleased to use this uh, uh, more and more to communicate to you all. A um, couple other things. One thing is uh, this, this season, we as a staff, we usually observe Christmas. That's kind of a day off for us. And then the day after. Well, since Christmas is Saturday, all of us already have Saturday off. And uh, today is the day after Christmas. And many of us have to serve still. Uh, we are actually observing Christmas and the day after Christmas on Monday and Tuesday. So that means the offices here at the church will not be open until Wednesday. So if you uh, forgot to give me cookies, uh, you can come by. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, I won't be here this week, actually. I'm taking the week off to celebrate uh, not only uh, Jesus's birthday, but my birthday, which is going to be a, a good time uh, to just kind of get away. So I won't be here, uh, but I'm sure, um, you know, if you bring them later, I'll be happy to receive them. Uh, that's just the way it goes. Anyways, and then the last thing is this, is every month we teach our membership and baptism class. And it's a four-week-long class. It's really a beneficial class to give you some information about our church, what we believe. Um, you can also um, learn about our vision and values and, and what... Um, kind of like what our objectives are as a church. A lot of stuff in there about membership, why it's important, how it's beneficial and beautiful to life of discipleship. Uh, there is, uh, at the end of it, a baptism class. And so if you have not yet been baptized, I highly, highly encourage you to come to that. And that way you can learn about the beauty of baptism and how it portrays the gospel. So um, that class will start on the 9th of January, four weeks long. 10.30 a.m. service, which is this service, and you can sign up through our resource email. All right. If you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to open it up to Matthew chapter 9, Matthew chapter 9, and we're going to be in verses 9 through 13. On Christmas Eve, by the way, it was a fantastic service. I, I just highly 
uh, I just want to thank everyone who was involved in setting up and tearing down um, and all that kind of good stuff, fire pits and lights and candles, and it was very, very cool. And all of you who prayed for no rain, thank you for that, because we had no rain and we were able to have our outdoor services, but my question is, how come you didn't pray for no wind? Because <laughs> people are holding their candles and they're like, oh, this is beautiful. <laughs> and so that was the way it went. Anyways, uh, it was a great time, and I'm glad that uh, those of you who were there got to be there with us. I was asked at the Christmas Eve service by a little girl, and she said, uh, Pastor Phil, what are you going to preach on on Sunday? Because now that Christmas is over, you don't have anything left. <laughs> and uh, I was like, well, I, I got a whole lot left. Um, but I thought, what a, what a great question. And I thought... Uh, This Sunday, I had already planned the sermon, but I thought this Sunday, let's answer the question, how can the coming of Jesus at Christmas impact my everyday life? Like, what are the implications of Christmas? And that's what we want to do today. And partly because we see in Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13, something familiar. You perhaps are familiar with this text. It's when Matthew gets called to discipleship. He leaves everything and follows Jesus. But what's amazing about this text, for me anyways, is the thought that in John chapter 14, Philip and Thomas and the other disciples wanted to know, quite simply, if Jesus could show them the Father, because that would be enough for them. And Jesus corrects their understanding and says in response to them, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And so for us, as we look into this story of Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13, we're seeing Jesus, but that's not all we see. We are looking into the very heart and character of God. So if you want to know what God is like, this is what God is like. Here is your God. Matthew 9, verses 9 through 13. Jesus passed on from there. And as he did so, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need for a physician. But those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so today what we're going to see is this Jesus, but more than Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees and Matthew, we see the very heart of God. And what do we see as we see Jesus in the heart of God? We see a God who is merciful and gracious and who welcomes sinners. You see, when Jesus comes, uh, when Jesus, yeah, is coming and he encounters Matthew, what's interesting about what's happening here is we learn a little bit about Matthew just by the first couple, couple words in this sentence. That is, Jesus was passing along and he saw Matthew sitting at a tax booth. That is to say, Jesus has just finished healing a man who was 
uh, paralyzed and people in response saw it and they were glorifying God and they were amazed by it. So Jesus leaves there and he begins to travel on and as he was traveling along this road, he encounters a man named Matthew. What's interesting about this is Matthew is then asked, and not really even asked, let's be honest, he's commanded to follow Jesus. To become a part of his band of disciples where Jesus would be their teacher and example and they would do likewise. Some things we learn about Matthew just from this interaction is that Matthew is a tax collector. But he's not like an IRS tax collector that you may think that's going to be knocking on your door like pay up. But instead, Matthew was sitting at a tax booth while Jesus was walking alongside of a road and so you should imagine it more as though he was a toll booth attendant but not just any old toll booth attendant he is the man who stops you and sees what kind of goods is in your possession and is going to tax you according to how much value your possessions are and so he either assesses or he could even overassess the value of what is in your possession and then enact a tax on what you carry, kind of like a duty. If you ever travel to another country and you have to pay duties on things, and if you've ever been like me, you're in an airplane and they give you the little card thing and you're kind of figuring out, you have any fruits and vegetables and you're asking yourself, hey, did the Starburst count? I'm not sure. And so you're trying to make sure you include everything because you just don't want to get in trouble. It's that kind of situation where you may have to pay taxes on this. So there is Matthew. Collecting taxes on the goods of the travelers who are going alongside the road, often over-assessing their value and therefore over-taxing them and taking a little bit off the top for himself. And in so doing, he was able to acquire great wealth, but also in so doing, he drew great criticism. In fact, in order to be a tax collector, you had to align yourself with the Roman Empire, which means you basically had to betray your country. And so people saw tax collectors as traitors. They were people who were not worthy of the name Jewish or Israel. And so there is Matthew, also called Levi. And as we see in Mark 2 and Luke 5, Jesus encounters this man who is called Matthew or Levi, the son of Alphaeus, and he simply says to Matthew, follow me. You notice this isn't like a, hey, if you get some time, hey, what are you doing after work? Anything? Nothing? All right, cool. Do you want to go grab some coffee? We'll just kind of hang out. It's not like that. Follow me. There's an urgency here, I think. It's not a question. It's more of a command. And what's interesting is Jesus is extending a welcome or extending an invitation to this man, Matthew, who seems so unlikely to be a candidate to be a follower of Jesus or one of his disciples because Matthew didn't have the street cred that is needed in order to follow this well-known rabbi. Don't you think if you were a burgeoning rabbi, many people find you enticing they want to follow you they're in just kind of interested in what you have to say you're becoming famous shouldn't you surround yourself with the most likable lovable maybe even attractive people and here is Jesus encountering this man Matthew despised by so many people and he said you follow me I imagine people going this guy this guy's a loser he's a traitor you want to be associated with this guy he's a clown 
Oh my goodness, what are you doing? Matthew would have been viewed as a lowly, unworthy, despicable candidate to be a disciple of such a profound rabbi. Everyone would have looked down on him. They would have treated him with suspicion. He didn't fit the mold. He wasn't part of us, so to speak. And yet, here's what we see in Luke 5, how Luke records it. That when Jesus gives the command, follow me, Matthew leaves everything. And he rose and followed Jesus. He abandons his post, which probably is going to cost him his job. And in losing his job, he's going to lose his income. And in losing his income, he's going to put potentially his house and his possessions in a place where he could lose them. Everything is at stake by that command, follow me. And yet Matthew follows anyway. Which gives me the impression that, you know what, when Jesus invites us or calls us to follow him, it's not as simple as we make it out to be so much in our culture today, which is we tend to think of Jesus' call to discipleship as little more strenuous, probably not any more strenuous really, or sacrificial, as when somebody friend requests you on Facebook or some social media thing, we're like, you want to be my friend? You're like, all right, cool, I'll follow you. And we're kind of thinking Jesus is similar to that. Like, Jesus is there. He's like, hey, you can follow me if you want. If you don't, if you're not into that kind of thing, it's all good. It's, you know, just do you. But that's not what Jesus has in mind. His, his command to follow me seems to be life-altering. It seems to be all-encompassing. It seems to be whole life discipleship in the sense that there is nothing in your life that Jesus is not interested in being Lord over. Everything. And sometimes we think, you know what, discipleship, you know, to Jesus is kind of just, it's kind of like when your phone needs to be updated to the new iOS or the new operating system where you're like, ah, the little red circle, ah, the only way to get rid of it is an update, okay. So you basically have the same phone, it just works a little bit different. And we sometimes think Jesus' call to discipleship is basically that. It's still you. You're still going to do the way that you do life, but there'll be a couple tweaks. Like your Sunday morning is now kind of, you know, you'll probably be busy during that time, if nothing else is going on. But that's not what Jesus is calling Matthew to. Or sometimes we think like our lives are just a little bit messed up, and so what we need is some tidying up. We just need a little bit of renovation. Let's tear it down to the studs maybe. And then once we have kind of the frame in order, we can kind of see what's what and then we can add walls or take a couple out or we can add some better plumbing or whatever and it's all good. But it seems to be whole life discipleship for Jesus is not merely sprucing you up a bit or kind of giving you an update. It seems as if Jesus hops into uh, behind the steering wheel of a bulldozer and just knocks everything over. It seems as though he raises the ground. He levels everything, makes it completely flat because in Jesus' mind, what he wants to do with you is start over. He's throwing everything in the dumpster. I'm making all things new. And it begins in you. I don't want a little bit of you. I don't want some of you. I don't want what's convenient from you. I want you, the whole thing. 
And so it's like when you trim a tree, you don't lop off a branch, a little bit here, a little bit here. Jesus looks at it and goes, hmm, take it all out, roots and all. We're starting over. I'm done with this. And that's discipleship. Everything must go. Everything must be surrendered. Jesus will have all of you or none of you. (laughs) No wonder why the road that leads to everlasting life is narrow and few find it. But wide and easy is the path that leads to destruction. And I'm not sure why we as Christians are trying to lower the bar so we can get as many people in as possible. When everywhere you look, Jesus is like, what are you, no, no, the bar is, unless you deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me, you can't be my disciple. That's high. Not easy believism, which is simply, do you like Jesus? Are you like not really offended by him? You'd kind of think he's all right. You know, he's got some helpful hints and tricks and tips for life. All right, you're a Christian. I want the whole thing. Now we go on to verse 10. And Jesus was reclining at table in the house. All right, how did he get there? Whose house is he in? And what in the world is going on? I'm glad you asked. Luke 5, going to verse 29. Immediately after Matthew is called by Jesus to follow him, here is Matthew's response. Not only did he leave everything and follow Jesus, but the next thing we see is that Matthew makes for him, that is Jesus, a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of people who had their life together and kind of had figured things out and were respectable people who wanted to kind of have some face time with Jesus to maybe network. No. This tax collector, this sinner, this despicable social outcast, this traitor to the nation, this person who is not part of us, throws a gigantic party, and who does he invite? Other lowly social outcasts who are traitors and despicable lowlifes, often called sinners. This is amazing to me. Obviously, the tax collection business has gone pretty well for Matthew. He's got a big enough house to throw a massive party like this, but he's also got enough money to pay for the food. And um, that's no, no small thing. I remember when uh, Heather and I were doing college ministry, we always had a night where we just had an open house. It was Thursday nights. And we told the college students, hey, come over. Starting at 8 o'clock, come over. The kids are in bed. We'll just hang out. And we'll just chill at the house and do whatever. And so they would come. At, it was slow at first. The first, I don't know, several months, there's five, six people would show up. And it was good conversation. And we'd talk. And we put out cookies. And it was fine. And then all of a sudden, a couple years later, we're looking at the house. There's like 40 people up in this house. And we had an open door policy, which is this. On Thursday night, I'm off on Fridays and Saturdays. So my vacation or my weekend has already started. I'm in my sweatpants and my reclining chair. If you show up to my house and ring the doorbell, I'm not answering it. You just got to walk in. <laughs> just walk in. So we left the door unlocked. People just walk in. I sit in my rocking chair. Hey! And they would come in. 
Next thing you know, they're like a herd of locusts. And they're in our refrigerator, they're in the cabinets, and by the end of the night, man, so much food is missing. Heather and I are looking at each other, we're like, we've got budget. These college, I don't know what their home life is like. I don't think their parents feed them. <laughs> this is crazy. And so over the years, we learned to prepare every Thursday night for a bunch of food for a bunch of kids that would come over and we would hang out. And sometimes they would hang out so late that Heather and I would go to bed and we we're like, hey man, you need to lock up and clean up. We're old and tired. Our bodies are weary. Let's go. And they would just clean up and they would leave. Uh, sometimes I text them in the morning. What time did you guys leave? They're like, we left about 1.30. It's like, all right. Thanks for cleaning up the kitchen and running the dishwasher. That's awesome. And uh, it was a fun time for us. We loved it. But I'm telling you what, when you are going to host like this, it's going to be costly. It's going to be sacrificial in some way. And that's what we see with Matthew, man. He's laying it on the line. He's spending good money to be able to get these folks together so they can eat together. But if you notice, let's go back to Matthew chapter 9, verse 10. Jesus was reclining at table in Matthew's house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came, and they were reclining, and look at this, with Jesus and his disciples. And so you have to imagine Matthew sent out an invitation to a whole slew of people. And in, in some way, he's like, I just met Jesus. I was welcomed by him. I was received by Jesus, even though I had nothing about me that should warrant this. There was no reason that Jesus should be compelled to invite me to follow him. It was all grace. And the response of Matthew is, the grace I have received from Jesus, I'm going to go and invite my friends to come and experience for themselves. And so he creates this space in which his friends can meet Jesus. And how does this opportunity arise? Through ordinary hospitality. Around here at Golden Hills, we talk often about hospitality. And how we define hospitality is this. You take whatever resources God has given you, whether they are little or whether they are much, and you leverage them to lovingly serve others for God's glory. Take whatever you have, whether it's little or much, and just use it in order to glorify God by lovingly serving others. And that's exactly what we see with Matthew. And in so doing, in opening the home, opening the bank, opening up the opportunity to have these sinners and tax collectors sharing the same space with Jesus and his disciples, Matthew was able to introduce his friends to Jesus. And I think for you and I, this is an amazing description of how you and I can introduce Jesus to our friends and family who do not yet know him. We can introduce Jesus to friends and family who do not yet know him by our works and by our words. The work that we do is open your life, open your home, open yourself, open your resources, graciously, lovingly, mercifully serve, welcome, receive people into your life. 
And then as they experience the grace of hospitality, as they experience your willingness to serve them and love them, even though they have no reason for you to do so, even though they've blown it with you, they will want to know why you're being so kind. Why are you doing this? I had college kids ask us all the time, why do you do this? They didn't know our church. They didn't know our ministry. They didn't know me. And here they are in my house. Why are you guys doing this? And it was opportunity for me to sit in the kitchen while stuffing my face with chocolate chip cookies and say, as the Lord Jesus has welcomed me, I also welcome you. As I have received grace, I will extend it. As I have received mercy, I will extend it. As God has loved me, so I will love you. And therefore, I introduce them to Jesus with words. Our works and our words in the context of ordinary hospitality has a profound opportunity to transform lives. Just imagine for a second what that scene would have looked like when Jesus and his disciples and the tax collectors and sinners are all sitting around at Matthew's house having a party, eating together. I imagine Jesus is being asked questions. And I imagine in answering those questions, Jesus is vulnerably opening himself up to these sinners and tax collectors. Likewise, I imagine Jesus asking them questions, prying into their hearts, and asking them to open their hearts to him as well. And in that context, I think this serves as a great pattern of how we can introduce others to Jesus as Matthew introduced others to Jesus. In fact, Jesus created a pattern of doing this so much so that he had a reputation. Some people came to Jesus questioning him about his ministry and why he's doing what he's doing. He says, look, the son of man, referring to himself, has come eating and drinking. I go into people's houses and eat with sinners and tax collectors. And then you all who criticize me, you say, look at him. He's a glutton and a drunkard. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so Jesus' reputation is being sullied in the mind of society. They're like, how can you associate with such traitors? How can you associate with those who have abandoned their nation? How can you associate with these people who have aligned themselves with the godless nation of Rome? How can you associate with the unjust and unloving and unkind people? Who do you think you are, Jesus? And yet we learn from Jesus, that we will see in a minute in verse 13, that Jesus did not come in order to save face, but he came to save sinners. And sometimes in order to love sinners well and to welcome sinners, you're going to have to lay your reputation on the line and be name-called and be ridiculed, and that's just got to be part of the deal, and you got to be okay with it. Now, how are these sinners going to be introduced to Jesus? Like I said... Through ordinary hospitality, which is the pattern that Jesus employed. It's the way in which Matthew shows us how, they went, how he went about introducing his friends to Jesus. And you and I can go and do the same thing through our works and words. Warmly invite, warmly welcome, graciously serve and love. And speak. Speak gracious words. Speak life-giving words in kindness and patience. After all, hospitality is one of the most powerful things in Scripture to adorn the gospel. 
In fact, one of the texts that has stood out to me most is this one. Welcome one another. But you don't welcome one another in any old way you see fit. You don't welcome one another when it's convenient or it makes you feel comfortable. You welcome one another in the manner in which Christ has welcomed you. He serves as the example, as the pattern, and we follow. And when we think about Jesus' command to Matthew to follow him, if you notice, Jesus didn't put preconditions or prerequisites. Hey, Matthew, you come follow me. Uh, but first, you got to quit your job. Then you got to get your life in order. And then you got to do this. And then you got to do that. And then you got to do this. And this. Jesus doesn't give him all these to-do lists before he follows. He simply says, follow. He receives them. And in the same way, you and I sometimes are very critical in our analysis of whether or not other people are qualified enough to have the privilege of your presence. Hmm, I'll see. Will this person help advance my career and my social standing in the neighborhood? Okay, yeah, they could. Okay, I'll spend time with them. We're very analytical in that way, where we are jockeying for position and angling in every relationship. And that's not the way of Christ. He welcomes sinners wholeheartedly and warmly. And just imagine if Jesus would have been kind of like how we are in our culture today where we try to uh, size one another up before we welcome them and bring them into our lives. Just imagine Jesus walking by on the road seeing Matthew there and maybe he scoffs at Matthew. Look at this scumbag. Or maybe he ignores Matthew, walking with his disciples, and they're walking by and they see Matthew and they're like, traitor, traitor. Nobody look at him. He's abandoned our, our country. Or maybe Jesus would scold Matthew. Who do you think you are collecting taxes? You should be ashamed of yourself. You're despicable. Or maybe Jesus would remind him how much people dislike him. You do know how much of a letdown you are to everyone, right? You know how disgraceful and disgusting you are to most people. I mean, it's not my opinion. I'm just hearing things. I'm just hearing people talk. And uh, they're not saying good things about you. But Jesus doesn't do that. And praise God he doesn't do that with us. Instead, Jesus welcomes us, receives us, extends grace and mercy to us, and in love, graciously invites us to himself. And in that manner of grace and reception and welcoming and hospitality, Matthew then receives it but does not stop with that. But as he's received it, then Matthew goes out and says, I'm going to multiply this grace and I'm going to multiply this welcome and I'm going to extend it to the far reaches of my community and the people I know and love. And that is the pattern, brothers and sisters, of what we should follow. If we have received grace, if we have received love, if we have been welcomed and warmly received by him, then go. And extend the welcome of Jesus, extend the grace of Jesus, extend the mercy and love of Jesus to others, invite them to meet this great Jesus through your works and words. And we could end the sermon here and you guys will all be inspired and you will want to run through walls. But we read verse 11. 
where the Pharisees come in and ruin everything. Shocking. Verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they weren't in the party, but they were close enough to know what's going on. You know what I'm talking about because all of you have been nosy neighbors. You hear car doors closing and this and that, and then pretty soon you're in the front window. What are they doing? And then you're cut off because, you know, the tree in the front yard, you can't see exactly what's going on. You're like, uh, I need to grab something from my car. And you go get your car, beep, beep, and you open the door. You're not looking in your car. You're like opening the door. <laughs> you just shut the door empty-handed. And of course, you walk inside. What are they doing? I don't know. There's a bunch of people. I don't know. You know what I'm talking about. You're laughing because you're guilty. <laughs> so here's the Pharisees. They're looky-loos. They don't know exactly what's going on, but they're kind of peeping out what's, what's happening. They know what's going on in the house. And so they said to Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? They have an objection. They have something uh, that they don't like about what Jesus is doing. And now notice this. They're using this moment to potentially attack Jesus' character. Uh, let, me, let, me t- let me ask you this, they say. Why is your teacher associating with such disgusting people? Could it be that he himself is disgusting? I mean, just a thought. But if you notice, they are asking the disciples. They're not asking Jesus. And there's a reality here that you and I know really well, which is this. It's much easier to talk about people than to people. And so here they are, talking about Jesus, saying, can you even trust this guy? I mean, look who he hangs out with. He's eating and drinking with these folks. Now, why should that matter? What's the big deal about eating and drinking together? There's an old saying in the ancient world, in the first century especially, but in the kind of two to three centuries around uh, that first century. There's an old saying, and it goes like this. One who opens their table to others opens their lives as well. Let me me say that again. One who opens their table to others opens their lives as well. Uh, During this Christmas season, Heather and I got invited to a a number of different small groups and we went to them and, and it was an enjoyable time, but one of the things I loved most about it, yes, we did like white elephant gift exchanges and we played some games together and, and all that kind of good stuff we sang. But one of the things I loved most about it was the eating time. And it wasn't just, you're probably thinking I'm like some kind of like, anyways, so the, the, the eating time, what I loved about it is as we ate, we had opportunity to just talk. And so one of the things that I talked with some of the small group leaders about was like, hey, when we get together and we begin to talk, I would love to hear the stories about these folks who are in your small group. I would love to just hear and get to know them a little bit. Because for Heather and I, we can't get to know everyone equally, but instead we can go to small groups in our church and we can hear from 12, 15, 16 people about their life story and stuff like that. And it gives us an opportunity to build upon that. So in one meeting, we could meet with so many different people. And so as we were eating, man, I got to hear life stories of where people were born, where they kind of grew up, how they grew up, what their careers were like, what they uh, studied in college, how many kids they have, grandkids they have, what their kids are up to, and all this kind of good stuff. And then it came around to Heather and I, and they would ask us the same question. What about you guys? 
What's your story? And then we were able to share. And in that moment around food, these folks were able to open up their lives and their hearts to us. And we got to open up our lives and our hearts to them. It's what the Bible calls or what, what Christians have called for the, through the millennia, table fellowship. Table fellowship. It's the idea that I open my table and in so doing, I open my life. Or to put it the other way around, as I open my table, I open my life. Now this is what's happening here and the, and the Pharisees don't like it one bit. Jesus is opening his life to these sinners and tax collectors and they are responding by opening their life to him and the Pharisees don't like it one bit. They don't like it because in table fellowship, Jesus is embracing sinners. He's accepting into his life sinners. Now, I got to be careful here because as Jesus is embracing or receiving or accepting these sinners right where they are, some of you may be hearing this. Oh, so it's true after all. Jesus loves us and accepts us as we are. Case closed. Some of you may be hearing that and going, yeah, okay, I'm into that. Jesus loves me as I am and leaves me as I am. Thank you very much. But that's not what's happening in the life of Jesus. Is if you've ever read the Gospels and you've read any more than just a couple little verses, you'll start to see that Jesus cares tremendously for sinners, not simply that he loves them and accepts them, but that they stop being sinners. It's an amazing thing. So yes, Jesus accepts all sinners where they are, but he loves us so much that he won't allow us to remain where we are. In fact, when Jesus starts his ministry, look at this. John the Baptist gets arrested. Jesus comes into Galilee. He's proclaiming the good news of the gospel. And in our culture today, there's so many so-called Christians who are proclaiming a so-called gospel of a so-called loving God who so-called doesn't do anything to change your life. And if you notice, that is not what Jesus preaches. He doesn't preach, hey, God loves you just as you are, stay as you are, and everything will be great. That's not good news, by the way. That's terrible news. In fact, if you lived by that and you parented in that way, child protective services would take your children from you. Because as a parent, you must accept your child, yes, but you must not always approve of your child. There are times when your child picks up a hammer to hit their little brother and sister and you go, well, they just want to do that. I mean, I have to approve. Bow! Yeah, I mean, what am I, who, I don't, I love them. I don't wanna like stop them from being them. No! Sometimes you must disapprove of your children or else your children will end up in prison. It's out of love. And so here's the good news. Jesus says the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And he says these words, repent and believe in the gospel. The word repent here means to change 
your mind and or your behavior. In other words, the essence of Jesus' ministry is he has come to preach that everyone is in need of changing. Changing the way you think and changing the way you live. And he loves you so much, he's telling you straight from the beginning what's what. And he loves you so much that when you repent and believe in him, he will transform your life and change you and you'll never be the same again. He accepts you, doesn't necessarily approve of you, but he promises to remake you if you will repent and believe in the gospel. So yes, Jesus embraces and accepts sinners exactly where they are. He receives them and welcomes them into himself through faith. But his aim and objective is always to never leave us where he meets us, but to make us new in his image. My family and I are about to get a puppy on January 10th. I'll call in sick the next Sunday. No, we're all excited for the puppy. Puppies are cute. And our soon-to-be puppy, which is a cockapoo, is probably the cutest puppy ever. Like, it'll have its own calendar. And uh, one of the things that I'm looking forward to most, not only is the cuteness of the puppy, which makes people squeal. I've seen it. Show them a picture, and they're like, eee! Like, whoa. But I can't wait for the day when our puppy is no longer a puppy no longer poops and pees on things and no longer eats things and chews on things and is no longer like a newborn that we need to take care of at all hours of the day. I can't wait for the day when our puppy is a mature dog, a well-trained dog who is a great companion, who has great affection and we for it. I can't wait for that day. We love puppies, yes. But at the same time, what we really love is their potential to become well-trained dogs. When you have a puppy and you don't train a puppy, you end up throwing it in the backyard and forgetting about it because you're like, it's wild and crazy and I want nothing to do with it. And if we love dogs so much that we don't leave them in their puppy state, rebellious and anxious, then why wouldn't we want to believe that God loves us so much that he won't leave us in a state of rebellion and anxiety, but instead he will mature us and make us well-trained so that we can enjoy life as he intended it. God will meet you where you are, but because of his love, he won't leave you there. He will take you on, mature you, train you, and in the end, make you fit for heaven and prepared for the glorious joy that awaits you. Verse 12. Jesus now is going to give three responses to these Pharisees. They're asking the question, why? Why in the world would Jesus be willing to associate and receive and welcome these sinners and traitors and scum of the earth? Why would he do that? Jesus is receiving them into his life so that he can then give them his own life. But he answers it in three ways more specifically. First, he starts with this proverb. He says in verse 12, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. 
Which is one of those times in the Bible where you're like, okay, that's so obvious and so like, duh, that you kind of gloss over it. Jesus says quite simply, hey, if you're sick, you should probably see a doctor. Oh, thanks, Einstein. Awesome. Of course. But he means it in a spiritual sense, obviously, as we'll see. But I think a lot of people are like me. I was talking to some people in the lobby and outside about what, uh, after the last service about what I'm about to say, and everyone, we're all laughing. Here's the thing. I don't know what's wrong with me, but sometimes my body hurts. I got injured in football, I got injured in baseball in college, and so I have some lingering injuries, and my kids make fun of me. Um, Whenever a storm comes rolling in, the low pressure, I wake up, and I can barely bend my knee and my ankle, and I'm like, oh, oh, oh. And so Heather says, you should probably see the doctor. And I'm like, why? Because if I go see the doctor and he finds something wrong with me, then I'm, something's wrong with me. But if I don't go to the doctor and nobody tells me something's wrong with me, nothing's wrong with me. You see how that works? And some of the men in here are like, I like his thinking. I don't know what's wrong with me, but I try to avoid the doctor at all costs because I just know intuitively they're going to find something, you know. Can you take your shirt off? Can you breathe deeply? Oh, that mole on the back is concerning. And they just have all these things that they poke you and you're just like, I don't want to deal with that. As long as I don't know what's wrong with me, I think everything is good with me. <laughs> Makes sense. But Jesus kind of is like, hey, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. If you're truly well, you don't need healing. But if you're truly sick, then you do need healing. So let me ask you the question. Are you sick or are you well? That's basically what Jesus is trying to get to. And because he's saying it to the Pharisees, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, he's not saying that the Pharisees are well, And that the tax collectors and sinners are sick. But what he's doing by this proverb is he's trying to open up the reality that all who are spiritually sick need spiritual healing. And so he's giving space for you to ask yourself the question, am I spiritually well or am I spiritually sick? If you believe you are spiritually well, if you believe that everything is kind of going well and humming along and everything's good, then you will simultaneously believe that you have absolutely no need for Jesus, who is the spiritual healer. But if you know that you are sick, then you simultaneously know that you need help. But the question is, do you believe you are well or do you know that you are sick? Where are you on this? What Jesus is doing here, I think, is a bit of irony. Because later on, he uh, says in verse 13, he's basically uh, saying, those who believe that they are well are you Pharisees, and those who know they are sick are the tax collectors and sinners. But I've come to heal the sick, not those who believe they are well. In other words... If you think that you are fine and you don't need Jesus, then you'll never be healed. But if you know something's wrong and you know you need Jesus, then you have the potential of being healed. 
Now, what's amazing in this is he's not saying the tax collectors are better than the Pharisees because they know their need where these folks don't. Nor is he saying the Pharisees are better than the tax collectors because they're more religious or whatever. Instead, what Jesus is saying is, whether you are a Pharisee or a tax collector, you're in the same boat. You're in need. And that's good news for you and I. Because every single one of us is born in need. And the good news is the only thing you need in order to come to Jesus to be healed is need. Which is the very thing all of us have. So in your need, come to Jesus in order to be healed. But the problem with the Pharisees is they're blind. They don't see their own need. They think they're well. And so what Jesus does for the the Pharisees to awaken them to their need is he says this in verse 13. Go and learn what this means in order for you to have your eyes enlightened and your heart awakened to your desperate need for me you need to go and learn this is a rabbinic phrase go and learn that is it's a rabbi a teacher would say go and learn and what it means is go and study the bible go and learn go and study scripture And so what Jesus is prescribing is this. If you truly believe that you are well and don't need Jesus, the thing that will cure you of your blindness is if you actually read Scripture and there you will see you have need after all. That's what he's telling the Pharisees. But you see, the Pharisees are blinded by their self-absorption. They look at the world around them and they're like, Dude, we got things kind of like well in hand. We're doing pretty well for ourselves. And that self-absorption leads to self-importance. If you constantly think about yourself all the time, pretty soon you become the most important person in your life. And when you are so self-absorbed that you become so self-important that everyone else is kind of inferior to you, then what ends up happening is your self-importance becomes self-deception. You deceive yourself into thinking you got everything under control. You don't really need much help. You have the wherewithal and resources to make life good. And then you devolve into self-reliance. I need no one but me, myself, and I. I don't need my family. I don't need friends. I don't need anything. I don't need a help, a handout. I barely even need a hand up. I got it. And when you become so self-reliant in this way... You are blind. What does a self-reliant person look like? It looks like the person who sees God as merely an accessory to life. Where you can hang God onto your life. It's kind of a, you know, if you don't have any hobbies. You don't have any, anything else to do. Like, it's off-season for your kids' sports. And so you're like, eh, let's do the Jesus thing for a while until season starts again. Self-reliance. I don't need Jesus. I don't need God for that matter. Why would I need him? Look at my house. It's beautiful. Look at my car I drive. It passes smog. Doors work. Look at my kids. They're excelling academically, athletically. I got a good job. It's like, you know, I get paid well. Got food in the fridge. Got clean socks to put on. My toilet flushes. What exactly do I need Jesus for? My life's pretty good. 
You see, if you're in your 50s or so, when I say life is good, you tend to, if you're 50s and older, you tend to think that what I just talked about is morality. Many people think they don't need Jesus because they're basically good, and you would interpret that as morality. That's not how our culture thinks anymore. You can be the most immoral person in the world and still be considered good as long as you're successful, if you're a winner. You seem like you got life kind of, you know, under control. It's those people who are out of control, who have their house foreclosed, whose kids are rambunctious, who lost their job. It's those people who aren't really good. But Jesus reminds us that everybody, Pharisee who thinks their life is good, can look at their accolades and achievements, look at their successes in life, and they will say, I don't need Jesus. Or whether you are a desperate, down-in-the-dumps person who knows for a fact that you got nothing good in your life except for Jesus alone. Both are equally in need. I find it strange that so many Christians believe that the real tension between Jesus and the Pharisees is this. That the Pharisees really concentrated a lot about theology and the Bible. And that Jesus didn't like that. It's like, dude, if you just stop worrying about theology, stop worrying about doctrine, stop worrying about the Bible, stop it. And if you will just stop it, then we'll love each other better. Duh. We'll get along. And then you'll figure it out. Close your Bible. Stop worrying about theology. Goodness gracious. But look at verse 13 again. You're spiritually blind. So I prescribe for you, as the great physician, I prescribe for you, go and learn theology and read your Bible. So the reason why Jesus and the Pharisees were at odds wasn't because Jesus found that the Pharisees liked or cared about theology too much or they read their Bible too much, is that they didn't read their Bible rightly. And they did not have good theology. That was Jesus' beef. So he says, go back to your Bible. Learn good theology. And understand the Bible rightly. And then you will awaken to the reality you don't have what it takes. You need me, Jesus says. And so he quotes Hosea. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now, let me show you verse 4 and 6, because what Jesus is doing is drawing a parallel between Hosea's time and the Pharisees. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? Another way to say Israel. What shall I do with you, O Judah? Now, look at this. This is God's beef. Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. We live in the Bay Area, and we are very familiar with fog. And many of us know if you want to go to the Bay Area, you want to go over the hill, and you want to go experience a good day, you should probably wait a little while until the fog burns off. Wait till the afternoon. 
And what God is doing is he's saying, your love for me is like fog. It's thick, but then give it enough time, it's gone. It burns away. You can't see it. It's not there. And so there's a lot of people who are enthusiastic about God, who love God more than anything. And then given enough time, given a couple, you know, experiences in life and some setbacks, pretty soon, love is gone. Like the dew, like the fog. And so God says this in verse 6, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. Do, Do you think I care more about your outward appearance and your behavior than I do about your heart? care about your heart I desire steadfast love not sacrifice and then look at this the next line I desire he says the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings I want you to know me I don't want you to just perform for me as though I prefer the outward appearance of godliness, as though I prefer all of this pomp and circumstance. You think I care more about that than the condition of your heart? I don't. Because I don't want all your stuff and I don't want all this extra stuff. I want you. I want your heart. Because from the heart comes everything else. And God has called us to give ourselves completely and wholly to Him. I want everything, God says. So don't give me your mere obedience. And don't give me your heartless, loveless obedience. Give me your heart, that out of which flows the obedience that I deserve. I want it all. That's what I desire. And the people in Jesus' day, particularly the Pharisees, believed that they could merely perform outwardly for God and receive God's blessings as though God cares very little about the heart. But in fact, God says, no, 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 no. I want the heart also. I want it all. Yes, God wants our obedience, but he wants our heartfelt love obedience. So what do we do? As Pastor Bo read Micah 6. Many of us, when we realize what God demands of us, we we tend to think, oh man, okay, what can I do? I just sinned last night. I just sinned last week. How can I make it up to God? Oh, 2022 is coming up. Oh, I'll sign up to serve at church. I'll sign up for a new small group. I'll get a new devotional. I'll get a new Bible. I'll do this, 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 and this. And all of it will make my guilt go away. And then I'll perform well enough and God will have me as his own. Lies. Lies. He says, I desire steadfast love. I don't want love like the dew. You're going to misplace your devotional in 10 days. You're going to lose your Bible. You're going to be inconvenienced by the sacrifice of service. You're going to give up on your small girl. And your love for God will just evaporate. And then what will you do? Well, should I come before the Lord? How should I bow myself before God? How can I make it up to you, God? Should I come with you, uh, come to you with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give up my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Should I quit my job, empty my 401k, sell my cars, 
live in a van down by the river? Like, what should I do to make it up to you, God? And God says, haven't I told you already? I told you what's good. You need to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Just be perfect. Just do everything exactly as you ought to. Uh, do justice, but do it in a loving kindness kind of way. And, and make sure in everything you do, you walk humbly with God. That's what, I, that's what I expect of you. That's what you can give me. And if you can give me that, I will accept you. And I pray and hope that you're like me when you read that and you go, I, I can't do that. I sin every day. I'm selfish. At times I'm self-reliant. I'm self-deceived. I, sometimes I turn the channel when I see things uncomfortable that are matters of justice. God, I can't be perfect. Ah, so what you're saying is you're confessing that you have a need. You're admitting that you're spiritually sick. Good. Because I came just for that. I came to heal that. And so we read in the Apostle Paul, this is a trustworthy and... Uh, and deserving of full acceptance this saying and that is Christ came into the world to save sinners Jesus came to the person who looks intently in God's law and says I failed I can't do it and they abandon all hope of doing it themselves and instead they come confessing in humility Lord help me I'm sick I'm sick and isn't it true, just as I uh, don't go to the doctor, instead I limp down my stairs and, what's wrong with you? Oh, nothing. Good. Because I don't want to hear the physician's diagnosis. Likewise, isn't that in a lot of ways why you and I neglect this book? We got time. You binge watch Netflix, you got time. You have enough time to scroll through social media while you stand in line and while you stop at stop signs. You have enough time. But this book is so filled with light, it exposes us, and we are scared of what we will see. And so we won't go and learn. And therefore, we do have to, then we get to ignore our need, and then we can deceive ourselves into thinking, see, I'm well. I'm good. I got an inflatable Santa in my front yard. And the neighbors love it. I don't need Jesus. But remember, Jesus came not to call the righteous, those who believe they are well. He says, I have come to call sinners. And not just to accept sinners or to welcome sinners or to receive sinners and leave them as they are. I have come into the world born on Christmas in order to call needy sinners to myself, that they will repent and believe in me and therefore be changed from the inside out, beginning with the heart, affecting the way we live. That's why I came. And Jesus says, unless you repent, you will perish. 
If you will continue to believe you have no need of Jesus, then you will die by your spiritual ailments. But if you know that you are spiritually sick, Jesus has come specifically for you to heal you and make you new. If you will believe and repent. Jesus embraces you right where you are. You don't have to jump through hurdles, hoops, or any prerequisites. He receives you as you are. And he simply says, come. Come. Even though our culture tells us that you are worthless until you are a winner. That you got your life in order. You got it figured out. I'm on the fast path to success. Jesus says, no, 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 I'm calling sinners. I'm calling the weak. I'm calling the weary. I'm calling the burdened. I'm calling the sinful. I'm calling the guilt-ridden, the shame-filled, the hiding, the hurting, the burdened. I'm calling you. Come. I will accept you as you are, receive you into myself, and I will exchange your brokenness for my wholeness. Because what I require, you can't provide, but I can. I provide perfect justice, perfect love, perfect grace, perfect obedience, and I will give it to you. What a lopsided trade that is. And that's what Jesus offers, if you will believe and repent. And what comes before us, church, is simply this. It is a blood-bought, resurrection-guaranteed, eternal reality. Where the Apostle Peter preaches, repent, therefore. Turn back from your sins. So that your sins may be blotted out. And that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. If you're burdened and you're weary, confess your weariness. Confess your sinfulness. Come to me and confess it. And I will give you rest, Jesus says, from the presence of the Lord. That God may send the Christ who is appointed for you, Jesus. And look at the Advent language here. This Jesus who's already come, whom heaven has received, that means heaven will also let go of this Jesus at the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. In this Christmas season, God has come to heal a broken world, to call weary sinners to himself. He's come to call sinners. He's come to call those who are sick spiritually. He's come to call all those who know their need. And he says, come and bring it. And I will take upon myself your sins and I will grant to you my righteousness. I will heal you in every way imaginable. And I will provide you with the refreshment and the and the rest that you've been longing for. And in this life it will be hard, but there's coming a day 
where all of the burdens and sorrows will flee away if you will come. And so I would invite you today to come. You may believe that you're a Christian your whole life. You may believe that you've been a Christian and you have the evidence to prove it. You got a baptism certificate and you got an Awana vest. And uh, you serve in some capacity. But you know full well that your heart is as cold as ice. And as as hard as granite. You may be obeying God and you may be performing for God. But your heart is so far from God that you're blind. And I would invite you, come. Come and confess that you need help. And you may be here and you're like, what do I need Jesus for? I got a BMW. What do I need Jesus for? What's he going to do to improve my life? And I would invite you to come. And be refreshed and be renewed. Because when you present your BMW before Jesus, it ain't going to get you much. Because there's going to be a newer model that you've already missed out on. So come. Confess your sins. Tell Jesus you're a sinner. Receive his grace and mercy. Allow him to welcome you into his life. And allow his life to come to you. Remember Revelation chapter 3? Jesus says, I come at the door and I knock. And to all who will open, I will come and dwell with them. Or I will come and sup with them. I will come and live in them. Jesus opens wide his heart. Will you not also? So Father, I pray that you would help all of us who are here in this festive Christmas season to realize that there is great implications for the coming of Jesus. That as he has come to save sinners, as he has come to welcome us into his life, as he has come to receive us as his own, to accept us where we are, he has also come to make us new, to restore us and revive us, to give us rest and refreshment calling us to repentance. And so I pray in this place, Lord, that you would grant the repentance that we need, that people in this place would confess their need of you and that they would cry out for help and you would be pleased to do as you are apt to do, to faithfully forgive, blotting out their sins and pouring forth refreshment. God, I pray that you would do that now. Grant by the Holy Spirit your grace. Overshadow us with your love. Consume us now, I pray, with your hospitality. And as we close our service singing these songs, I pray that we would sing them to one another to remind each other of how much you love us. And for that, Lord, we give you thanks and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.